If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. On today's episode, I'll be talking World War II escapes with historian Helen Fry. Helen is author of a new book, MI9, which looks at the ways in which the Secret Service helped British servicemen escape. From smuggling hidden gadgets into camps to operating escape lines running across Nazi-occupied Europe. Your new book is a history of MI9, and I think most people will have heard of MI5 and MI6, but unless it's just me, probably not MI9. So what was MI9 and what did they get up to in the Second World War? So MI9 was as top secret as MI5 and MI6, and its brief was really to deal with prisoners of war. And from our perspective, MI9 was involved in escape and evasion. So getting our airmen and soldiers back from behind enemy lines, back from prisoner of war camps, the famous great escape stories, because, of course, if you think about an airman, for example, it took about three months to train an airman. And if you're losing them behind enemy lines, if they're shot down, they're captured, you don't have them as part of the fighting forces. And it was absolutely vital, MI9 realised, that we need, particularly the pilots, so that we could have air superiority over the German Air Force. MI9's brief was to make sure personnel knew that if they were captured or stuck behind enemy lines, they were never forgotten and that someone would try and bring them home. And there was also an intelligence aspect to this as well, wasn't there? It wasn't just about getting um, servicemen back into the fighting force. It was about gaining knowledge from them. Yes, yeah, so this is something that is quite new, I think, in my book. And incidentally, it is, I was staggered to find out it was the first history of MI9 for 40 years. And listeners may remember Airy Neve's book and Foot and Langley, and they were really the kind of defining histories of MI9. But I was lucky to be able to work now on the declassified files. And it's now emerged that MI9 was involved in intelligence gathering, the realisation that prisoners of war are a source of intelligence, so that when they got back, and not forgetting that MI9 rescued around 35,000 Allied personnel across the war, so they were all debriefed or interrogated, as, as it says in the files, and so there are escape reports, as they're known, for airmen and soldiers, for commandos, whoever got back. And of course, what they've seen, their eyewitness accounts, not only of how to escape that could be useful to other prisoners, but also just basic intelligence on the ground, defences, state of the armed forces, the German armed forces, positions, anything that they've witnessed could be useful, however small that detail. So, Imagine that I'm a prisoner of war, holed up in Colditz or Stalagluff 3. 
How would MI9 help me escape? MI9 had a number of uh, methods, one of which was the coded communication. So they would send coded letters into the camps with information or um, to expect special parcels which would have escape devices in them. And this is probably one of the things which has really been immortalised from MI9's history. Although we may not have heard of MI9, we know about MI9 subconsciously because of the Q gadgets. And Ian Fleming immortalised them in his James Bond novels, but studying the original archives, it's incredible to find that it's not his imagination that a lot of the exploding pens and goodness knows what else is actually in the MI9 files. And one of the biggest things that MI9 did was to send in the miniature compasses. And these could be hidden. They were hidden behind the buttons on uniforms and they were screwed counterintuitively, so the Germans never found them. But um, over 1.3 million of these were manufactured and sent uh, or used by uh, Allied personnel. And all sorts of things could be smuggled into the camps in games, for example, because prisoners were allowed uh, leisure activities. So these were sort of gifts to keep the prisoners amused. Uh, one of the most famous was the chess set. And inside the night... It was specially lined and it would have ink. So that was one way of sending ink into the camp. And actually, I've got another example, uh, which is quite fascinating. Blankets to keep the prisoners warm in the winter. So MI9 would send in blankets and the prisoners would know, often from a coded letter, that if you dip that in particular liquid or in a bucket of water, this dye would suddenly emerge and the pattern of a uniform that could be made into a German uniform for escape. So it's all this kind of bonkers stuff. It's incredible stuff, isn't it? One of my favourites, I think because it seems so preposterously kind of British of that era, is is the Monopoly sets. <laughs> I wonder if you could tell us about them. Yeah, so the Monopoly sets, again... Um, these were used to smuggle items in through the little pieces or even between the boards themselves. You'd have to cut open the board, but there would be a map hidden inside. Again, one of the items that was very famous were the MI9 escape maps. And again, we've got huge numbers here, about 1.6 million of these across the wartime for all areas of MI9's operations. So it wasn't just Western Europe and parts of Germany. MI9 produced maps, which was printed onto silk in incredibly fine detail. And this was for Western Europe, the Far East, the Middle East, anywhere where personnel could escape. In terms of MI9 contacting people in prisoner of war camps. Um, how did that work? Were they primed to expect a coded letter and taught the code in advance? Were there certain agents who infiltrated? How did they know when they received a letter full of nonsense that it wasn't just full of nonsense? MI9 had a training programme before personnel went into action. And during that, a certain number of personnel were taught code. 
known code five one of them was known as do you know i still cannot work out there are examples in the mi9 files of actually of a letter that's coded and how you work it out and they could tell from the date the way the date was written or how it was signed off that there was a code in that letter and there ought to be in every camp somebody that knew how had been taught that code so that's how it was done I still can't decode them. I would have been useless. <laughs> I think these stories really conjure up the idea of the great escape and cold its and daring do. But there was actually some real um, real danger and peril underneath involved in these escapes. How dangerous was it to try and launch an escape for prisoners of war? I still think this is an incredible part of the history. When you think about the nerve of the escapes, because quite often, once they got out of the camps, and that was dangerous enough, because of course, with Stalag Luft 3 that you mentioned, in March 44, 80 of those prisoners escaped, mainly pilots, and 50 of them were shot. They were recaptured and shot as an example to other prisoners not to escape. So it was dangerous. If they managed to get out, they often couldn't take the shortest route across Nazi-occupied Europe, for example, because the Germans were looking out for those routes. They were obvious. So they were often smuggled by helpers and guides right under the noses of the Nazis in disguise through Paris, for example. And they were long journeys. This was not you know, easy. It was no way was it easy to get out. And, of course, there was no guarantee that once they'd escaped an escape line would find them and pick them up. So there was a lot, a lot at stake. Well, how did those escape lines operate? Before going into action, MI9 gave training to personnel in ways of escape and evasion. And one of the key things they were told was do not make any attempt to contact an escape line. You might be hiding near a farm, and just look out to see if there are any men in the farm where they're away fighting because the women are more likely to be friendly, to feed you, to shelter you. But you are to wait for helpers and guides to come to you. And that's actually what happened. That, of course, locally in Belgium, for example, local people knew if an airman had been shot down and was thought to be hiding in the woods and then they would go to seek him. And that was a way of protecting the pilot, but it was also a way of protecting the escape lines. And I think the chances of survival are tough because you really do not know who is friendly. You know, there you are, you've escaped, you're waiting in the woods or you're waiting, you're hiding in a barn, you've got to find food. You also don't know if the farmer's family are going to be friendly or whether they're going to turn you over to the Gestapo. And that was one of the biggest risks. And as we know from MI9's history, there are points at which the escape lines were decimated by betrayal. And people betray for all sorts of reasons, for money, for power, whatever, personal gain, really. And we mustn't underestimate. And for me, I think in these escape stories... They're, they're trekking hundreds, if not thousands of kilometres, and at any point they could be picked up. I, I give you an example, actually. It's given in the MI9 escape lectures. 
one of the airmen actually managed to escape. And he's not named, but he cycled 400 kilometres across Nazi-occupied Europe. And he's almost made it to a point where he could be smuggled out. But he was given away. And what gave him away was the fact that he cycled round a roundabout the wrong way. And the local policeman thought, hang on a minute. So it's not just what we think about hiding. If you're moving in plain sight, almost, you have to be really careful. As MI9 said, you don't walk in a British way or with a stick. You've got to think about your clothing. So it's down to the finest detail. It's not just about hiding. And of course, it was, a ma- as you highlight in the book, there was a massive risk for anyone who aided these people, um, civilians in the occupied countries who aided servicemen getting out or abetted them in any way, put their lives and their families at huge risk. This was something I tried to understand because, of course, we are now losing the eyewitnesses to this history. I was very fortunate to be able to interview Elsie Marshall. She lives south of Brussels. She's now heading for 98 years old. She was 16 years old when she started to work for the escape line, the Comet Line, from Brussels that went through Paris right down to the Pyrenees. And I wanted to understand why did they do it? Because they could have just sat back and waited for the Allies to invade, you know, to liberate them. And she said something very poignant. And for me, this was a turning point in the book. And I really began to understand because it wasn't just that they themselves were at risk. If they were captured, their whole families could be shot. And that did happen. And Elsie said, you know, every day the Germans were taking our food, our clothing, our coal. We were cold in the winter. We were hungry. The trains were leaving for Germany every day. But she said, most importantly, they took my Jewish friends. And she said, out with the Nazis. You know, I just, she was so defiant when I interviewed her. I said, that phrase, out with the Nazis, she said. And she said, for us, the fight for freedom and for democracy transcended it all. I still think it's incredible. That seems so simplistic. But the courage and the heroism, although, of course, she doesn't see herself as a heroine. But her family, she lost her father. Her father was betrayed and he was shot. And I would just add, actually, it was not easy. I said that Elsie began at the age of 16. Two years later, when the family was betrayed, she and her mother spent three years in various concentration camps and barely survived. Um, Yeah, those were the risks. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Veteran Elsie Marshall told me, she said that we did not know that we were working for MI9. She said we were working for an organisation in London, or just outside London. She said, but it wasn't until after the war that I learned about MI9. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. 
Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. Each and every one of those stories um, is kind of full of bravery and, and trepidation and, and risk, isn't it? But what were some of perhaps the most audacious escapes that MI9 were involved in? Oh, that's a really difficult one. I don't know <laughs> if I would want to categorise them. I think really, yes, some of them were audacious. Some of them were last minute um, what would be the most audacious? I suppose it wouldn't be a single escape for me, but I I can't understand the nerve or the courage it would take for a prisoner to actually walk out of a camp dressed in German army uniform or dressed, as in one case, as a German general. I mean, <laughs> that takes guts. And often the uniforms and the the appendices, if you like, were made of things that were smuggled into the camp. So I'll just give you one example. Major General Brummel, who was too large to sort of go down a tunnel. So they made a German general's uniform for him and he basically walked out of the gate as a German general. But his holster for holding the gun... They made out. They made out of chocolate. They made a mold in the camp, and made it out of chocolate. But from a distance, it looked real. And for me, I think that's that's how we look at these escape stories. It's not necessarily what's the most audacious or dangerous, but for me, it's that quirky way of thinking of escapes. Yeah. And I'll give you one more example, actually, which for me just captured my imagination. It was um, two prisoners um, who the German guards had asked to paint white lines in the camp. And they're not named, but basically they're painting these white lines. The German guards are sort of laughing every day and jeering at them in the heat and they're sweating. And there's a heck of a lot of lines to paint. Well, of course, they carry on painting the white lines out the gate round the corner, and then they run off. And they actually made it back to England. It's incredible. It's incredible the ingenuity involved and the, and people's craft abilities back in the day in order to just conjure up a German uniform is really remarkable. So as you say, many people did make it back to England. When they did, what was awaiting them? What can you tell us about the debriefing interrogation process? So as far as we know... They were debriefed either at MI9's headquarters at Wilton Park, which is in Buckinghamshire, 
near Beaconsfield or in the Grand Hotel, Central Hotel in Marleybone Road. And one of the MI9 officers would literally uh, debrief them, interrogate them step by step. But what I did discover was that MI9 was the first, along with naval intelligence officers connected to MI9, they were the first to use female interrogators. And the MI9's female interrogators were the only known female interrogators of World War II. Incredible. So women were starting to be given roles which ordinarily and traditionally would have been assigned to men. And the MI9 official history is a wonderful quote in there which says, the right kind of woman makes as good an interrogator as a man. And I just found that fascinating. Um, what kind of intelligence were they hoping to get from these servicemen? And also, another flip side of that is is whether we see the impact of that intelligence anywhere in, in how Britain waged its war. Yes, so there's still a lot more to do. And this is something which I'm sort of appealing to our historians to do. They're, they're writing any aspect of the war. I came across, for example, in the Dieppe raid, a couple of escapers who, again, have got eyewitness accounts of the Dieppe raid. And we always think of that as being very fail, a failed raid. Um, so prisoners that get back from behind enemy lines, they're giving information, for example, on port defences, on areas of the border curfews. They might even know about German railway timetables. Anything, any small bits of information to help in escape and evasion. It wasn't just Allied personnel that had intelligence. It was also the helpers and guides. They smuggled out intelligence, for example, on Hitler's secret weapon programme, on the V1 and the V2. And I think there are still gaps in the declassified files on some of the stuff that was brought out. And we know that was stuff on airfields and defences that were brought out over the Pyrenees, for example. I think one of the biggest reveals for me, and it's relating to intelligence, MI9 had a top secret section called Room 900. And I've actually written quite a bit about Room 900 in the book. It was not only sending agents behind enemy lines, and Airy Neve and Jimmy Langley, those big giants of MI9, were involved in that. But I also discover that Room 900 was involved in intelligence gathering, on a, on a par with the kind of stuff that we traditionally think of as being the domain of MI5 and MI6. And Room 900 was sending back information from behind enemy lines on German agents and spies. So Room 900 was involved in counter-espionage as well as ordinary intelligence gathering. And for me, that changes the nature of MI9 and places it on a par, actually, with MI5, MI6, GCHQ, as now is. And I think there's far more that we can do as historians to, to uncover more about MI9's role in that respect. Well, that is a thread that is, runs throughout the book, isn't it? The, the relationship between MI9 and the other secret services. There was a lot of as well um, interagency infighting. Why do you think that that was and what was the impact of it? Yeah, it had very real impact because 
um, if we think of one of the key characters in this, and he's not mentioned in any of the MI9 files, and this is the character of Claude Dancy. He's deputy head of MI6 in the wartime, but he's also in charge of MI9's escape lines. He's in charge of both, of MI6 escape lines and MI9 escape lines. And what I discovered, there was a reason for that, that he didn't want the lines to become blurred so that you compromise the activities of either of those secret services. But also, he had a problem with SOE, with Special Operations Executive, and of course, SOE was involved in blowing up things behind enemy lines, disrupting, causing a lot of noise and nonsense for the Nazis, setting Europe ablaze, as Churchill said. But of course, that's precisely what MI9 and MI6 did not want. They wanted to quietly work away. And so there is this controversy as to whether Claude Dancy sacrificed the lives of some SOE agents to protect the other escape lines. It's very controversial. Potentially, it's possible. But I think people have to read the book to make up their own mind. Some of the stuff that I reveal there. Well, as you as you write in the book, the story of MI9 is as much about the people involved as the organisation. Who were some of the figures in this story that really captured your imagination? They're, they're figures, they're the giants of MI9 that we know about, the Neve and Langley. But also there's a particular woman uh, who was functioning out of Italy and her legacy really was not known before this. And she was called Renata uh, Farsicani della Torre. I hope I pronounced her name correctly. Probably not. She worked out of Milan. She was just 21 years old intellectual, university educated, aristocratic family, long aristocratic family in Milan, very shy actually, the least of the people that you would expect to be helping with escape lines or organising and setting up escape lines from Milan through northern Italy into Switzerland. And this is an area that's very, you know, there's hardly anything on this. So I was really pleased to have got her story because her family didn't really know what she'd done in the wartime. And she'd also headed an intelligence unit from her home. And even her mother didn't know. She hid things behind the, the wardrobe in her mother's bedroom. Um, and yeah, this these were the kind of risks. But again, it was that belief that they had to do something to liberate Europe. That's why they did it. So hers is an inspirational story and she's stunningly beautiful. I've got a photograph of her in the book. She's almost like a film star. Something I was surprised to read about in the book was the involvement of the Vatican. What can you tell us about that? I've learned as a historian never to be surprised by what your sources reveal. But even I was like mega surprised by the discoveries of the Vatican. And the Vatican was involved with MI9. There was a particular British officer, Sam Derry, who actually at the end of the war ends up becoming head of MI9. He's being transferred from a camp in northern Italy to Germany with other prisoners of war from camp, Kaiti camp in northern Italy. And he jumps off a moving train. It's all sort of very James Bond. And he makes it to Rome and he's in hiding for a bit. And eventually he links up with Monsignor Hugh O'Flaherty, 
who's a priest in the Catholic Church, and together they start running an escape line out of Italy, the Rome Escape Organisation. It goes on to save over 4,000 Allied personnel. But when Derry's betrayed, what happens? O'Flaherty smuggles him into the Vatican and they start running their escape rescue missions from right inside the Vatican. And people often ask me, did the Pope, Pope Pius XII, know about this? Absolutely. And the Vatican was also helping to funnel money on behalf of MI9 to help this rescue effort. So fascinating stuff. A very mixed history, of course, because the Vatican doesn't have a good record during the Second World War. I think it wasn't as neutral as we perhaps think. So again, there's a, a bit of work to keep historians in a job for a, for a bit longer. When, when you're trying to reconstruct these escape lines and these shadowy organisations as a historian, how do you go about doing that? Is it mainly kind of retrospective accounts from those involved after the war? Because surely so much of it was kept hidden, that it must be hard to piece together again. It is hard to piece together. You're absolutely right. Because the MI9 files, interestingly, don't have any history of the escape lines. That we have to get either from the escape reports or from accounts like Airy Neve's book Saturday at MI9 or Foot and Langley's seminal work on MI9. Donald Darling, another character in MI9, again, they wrote memoirs. So it's sort of piecing this together and any documentation in the Imperial War Museum, for example. So, yeah, there's an awful lot which perhaps has also been held back. But that's one thing I did discover, that there is no official history of the escape lines by MI9 itself, because let's face it, they're involved in escape and evasion. They're not involved in writing history for people like me, unfortunately. Why do you think it is that MI9 hasn't shared the spotlight in the same way that MI5 and MI6 have um, up until now? Well, I think they have, in a sense, through the escape stories, escape from Colditz, escape from Stalag Love 3. Those kind of things have been immortalised in our films. But of course, there's no mention of MI9. And it could be as simple, I have no simple answer, but it could be as simple as what the veteran Elsie Marshall told me. She said that we did not know that we were working for MI9. She said we were working for an organisation in London, or just outside London, that was sending us money and agents and support. And when, when someone was at risk, was also trying to get some of our leaders out through these very same escape lines. She said, but it wasn't until after the war that I learned about MI9. And so I just find that incredible. They are working for an organisation whose name they don't know, that's how top secret it is. And in a way, perhaps that's the same thing that has been carried on with the escape stories. We think about the escape stories, we love them, but we don't think who is behind them. And of course, the other very simple point that the files remained classified for so many decades. That was Helen Fry. Her book, MI9, A History of the Secret Service for Escape and Evasion in World War II, is on sale now, published by Yale. I've also spoken to Helen on the podcast about her previous books on the secret services during the Second World War. 
If you'd like to listen back to those episodes, then simply go to our website, historyextra.com, and type Helen Fry into the search bar. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in tomorrow to hear Neil Price discussing the Vikings. (laughs) Thank you.